Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Hooray! This week I'd like to talk about the poet John Macefield. Now you may never have even heard of John Macefield. He was Poet Laureate from 1930 to 1967, which is a good old innings for a Poet Laureate. So he made it, Macefield, but he himself lived from 1878 to 1967. I'm giving you some Macefieldian facts early on. I know I often don't do much biog. I'm just going to give you the bits I think are juicy. Par exemple, he was raised by his aunt, John Macefield. His mum died early. And fabulously, she sent him to sea to be a sailor because she was worried that he was addicted to books. I know, it's fantastic, isn't it? And a fabulous portent of his life to come. So he he was on ships and things for about four years, and then he finally jumped ship at uh, New York City and lived as what they used to call a vagrant for several months. And eventually he got a job in a New York City carpet factory. Why are you telling us the carpet factory thing, you ask me? I like the fact that when he was there, he spent most of his wages on books and reckons that he bought about 20 books a week. This is my kind of guy. And also, he was a tremendous champion, Macefield, of reading poetry aloud. And so he might, he might have liked this podcast. You never know. So, look, if you know anything at all about John Macefield, it will be that he wrote a poem called Sea Fever. It's hyphenated. Sea Fever, which he wrote in 1902, was at least was published then, and was probably his breakthrough moment. If I read the first bit, you'll probably recognise it, and then you'll think, oh no, you've slightly got that wrong. But I've got it right, and the world has got it wrong. I must go down to the seas again to the lonely sea and the sky. And I think when you hear this quoted, if you've ever heard it quoted, people almost always say, I must go down to the sea again. But that's not what the poem says. And I like that it says seas. And I'll tell you why, because I go down to the sea occasionally, but, you know, I paddle and do that thing of running away when the wife comes in and then running back again as it recedes. But when you go down to the seas, I think that means you're going to be out there. You're going to be riding the big ones. And so it's the right word, as ever, with uh, good poets. But also, indulge me on this, I like the fact that it, of course, echoes the word seas, S-E-I-Z-E, which is all about grabbing something quickly with gusto, with some desperation. And I must go down to the seas again. And the title Sea Fever, which suggests a feverishness, all works for me. 
as far as the seizing is concerned. I'm going to give you the first stanza and then we'll have a little talk about it. I must go down to the seas again, to the lonely sea and the sky, and all I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer her by. And the wheels kick and the wind's song and the white sails shaking and a grey mist on the sea's face and a grey dawn breaking. Oh, it's good. So, I must go down to the seas again, to the lonely sea and the sky, the lonely sea. This is someone, I think, who wants to be separate, who wants to get away from the world. And all I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer her by. That rhythm, I must go down to the seas again, to the lonely sea and the sky, and all I ask is a tall ship. And those two monosyllables, tall ship, kind of stop that rocking rhythm. And I think he's trying to emphasise the solidity and the strength of this tall ship, this thing that he will be depending on when he's on those rolling seas. And a star to steer her by gives it a sort of a cosmic feel. And, of course, we've got that lovely alliteration of star and steer. Very close, those words, in their sound. And then he says, And the wheels kick and the wind's sung and the white sails shaking. And you can hear those W's and S's there. The wheels kick and the wind's sung and the white sails shaking. And the wheels kick, I'm assuming, is when you feel the... Um, they didn't call it a steering wheel, though I believe it is a wheel that steers on a ship. But feeling that when you're sort of fighting against the sea and the wind sung and the white sails shaking. It's a stormy feeling, whereas the next line and a grey mist on the sea's face and the grey dawn breaking sounds post-storm. Grey, but still calm, beautiful. But you'll notice the... Uh, I must go down to the seas again, the imperative of that. And that continues into the remaining two stanzas. Here comes stanza two. I must go down to the seas again, for the call of the running tide is a wild call and a clear call that may not be denied. And all I ask is a windy day with the white clouds flying and the flung spray and the blown spume and the seagulls crying. Now, that switch of rhythm, it happens in both those stanzas. When we say on the wheels kick and the wind song and the white sails shaking in that first stanza and the grey dawn breaking and here the white clouds flying and the seagulls crying it feels like that bit when you're at sea and it just seems to stop for a moment you rise up and you know there's going to be the fall and then boom so the white sails shaking the whole thing feels like the rhythm of the sea to me and I am a land lobber 
par excellence, but listen to it. I must go down to the seas again for the call of the running tide is a wild call and a clear call that may not be denied. And all I ask is a windy day with the white clouds flying and the flung spray and the blown spume and the sea gulls crying. And it's I feel it is that natural rhythm of the sea. The running tide, I think there what he means is the tide just running free. This is not, he's not having any control at this point. The tide will lead him on. And there's a sense of that in, in the whole poem, that this is not a man who's going anywhere other than away. I must go down to the seas again for the call of the running tide is a wild call and a clear call that may not be denied. And that, I think, tunes in with Sea Fever, the title. It's a wild call and a clear call that may not be denied. It's like something in the blood that he just has to follow. Like the tide, it's as if the moon, which obviously affects the tides, is affecting him and the moon associated with madness etc. And all I ask is a windy day with the white clouds flying and the flung spray and the blown spume and the seagulls crying. You can hear that of the sea. The blown spume, I like. It's that sort of froth that you get on the top of the sea. You can imagine that in the air and the spray in your face. Oh man, we're at sea. Okay, the last stanza. I must go down to the seas again. Again, it it really... I know it's a a technique to begin every stanza with the same phrase, but it isn't just, oh, I'll do that. It's telling us something. And it is the draw, the nagging draw of the sea to the speaker. I must go down to the seas again, to the vagrant gypsy life very romantic now listen to the gull's way and the whale's way where the wind's like a wetted knife lots of w's in this which again makes me think of the wind the gull's way and the whale's ways he's not following he's not talking about carefully planned routes of man here He's talking about the gull's way and the whale's way, some sort of mystical route that he seems to want to follow, a route that is no route as far as um, the shipping company or the captain is concerned. He's following something a bit deeper and a bit more natural than that, where the wind's like a wetted knife, wetted as in W-H-E-T-T-E-D, sharpened, that wind cuts through you. And all I ask is a merry yarn from a laughing fellow rover and a quiet sleep and a sweet dream when the long trick's over. So obviously this might sound a bit old-fashioned to us and all I ask is a merry yarn from a laughing fellow rover. But that's one of the things I think he's reaching out for, that sort of male company someone who understands you. He wants to be amongst his own, if you like. 
And then at the end, I think, is home and, and looking back on all this and quiet sleep and a sweet dream when the long trick's over. A trick is a, a period of work or duty. So I think it's that moment when you get back from something that's slightly challenging and terrifying, that post-glow. I used to get it with the gymnasium. Some men need a long sea voyage to get that level of fear together. Okay, so that is sea fever. I do love it. It kind of got me into Macefield generally, and then I started reading some of his longer poems, and he writes long narrative poems, stories with a kind of a moral to them, like what people used to enjoy. And I just want to rattle off a couple, because when you read them, you feel like this is a guy who's desperate to tell the story, and sometimes the poetry goes up like needed a bit more of thought, a bit more of a polish, and he doesn't really care. It's like the trajectory of the story just wings him along, and you too are propelled by the meter and the rhyme, and, and actually wanting to know what happens next, which isn't always that common in poetry. I just want to rattle off a couple. I'm not going to read the whole things because they are epics, but I check them out if you're interested at all, if you've heard anything that makes you think... Nice field, sounds interesting. There's one called The Everlasting Mercy from 1911. And uh, it's about a, a, a man, a poacher, in fact, who falls out with a fellow poacher and they have a big boxing match, which he's lucky to win. And then they all go to a pub and get absolutely smashed. And there's some bits you don't really expect in a poem from 1911. Quite a lot of barmaid on the knee action and um that is i'm giving you just the beginning of that aspect in the poem it's a lot sort of coarser and more real than you might imagine a poem from that period by a man who's going to go on to be poet laureate especially there's a bit though where the main guy he basically runs around the town naked shouting fire in the middle of the night, mainly because he's got so utterly drunk at the pub. But it's it feels bigger than that. So the sort of firefighters come out, and I'll just read you a quick bit. And like I say, it rattles along, so I'm not going to stop. I'm just going to rattle. Who brought the news and where's the fire? Days moonlight, lamps and gas to light them. So this is what he's saying. This is how they light in their way. Moonlight lamps and gas. I give a screech owl screech to fright them and snatch from underneath their noses the nozzles of the fire hoses. I am the fire. Back. Stand back or else I'll fetch your skulls a crack. Do you see these copper nozzles here? They weigh ten pounds apiece, my dear. I'm fire of hell. Come up this minute to burn this town and burn you clean, you cogwheels in a stopped machine, you hearts of snakes and brains of pigeons, you dead devout of dead religions, you offspring of the hen and ass, 
by Pilate ruled and Caiaphas. Pilate and Caiaphas, sort of bad guys from the New Testament, people who follow the establishment, political and religious, rather than listening to their hearts. Now your account is totted, learn. Hell's flames are loose and you shall burn. So like mad, naked, drunk runs through town, threatening to hit firefighters with their own nozzles. I mean, it's not a theme that you often come across in poetry. I'm going to give you one more of these sort of uh, extracurricular Macefield poems. And just a bit from one of the long ones. There's one called Dorba, which was written in 1912. Dorba, D-A-U-B-E-R, as in painter. And it's about a bloke who loves painting and who also goes to sea. And the sailors don't trust him because of his art interest. You know what it's like? There'll be people listening to this who are the one person in their group who's interested in poetry or art or anything like that and it frightens people it makes them angry it makes them feel threatened when I say people I mean the masses sometimes you get stick for it you know and that's what happens to the dauber and what they actually do he keeps his paintings under I think a lifeboat and they find them and they don't even just chuck them away they deface them and put glue and water on them so that when he finds them he will see they haven't just blown away that they have been marred by his shipmates horrible and after this experience and uh, him seeing the, the captain to complain and the captain saying it serves you right you shouldn't be putting stuff under the lifeboats which is a, a good rule for life I suppose and then he goes back and tries to paint in the midst of all this upset and rage. And listen to this. He dipped his brush and tried to fix a line. And then came peace. And gentle beauty came, turning his spirit's water into wine, lightening his darkness with a touch of flame. He's getting fired up by his art. Oh, joy of trying for beauty, ever the same. You never fail. Your comforts never end. Oh, balm of this world's way. Oh, perfect friend. So no matter how horribly he's being treated on this voyage, his art saves him. And there's a big message there for all of us. I mean, this is what happened with Maysfield. He's living as a vagrant and then he discovers poetry, and uh, he becomes Poet Laureate. There's one more Macefield poem I want to do, and it's from 1936, and it's called Partridges. And it is written in iambic pentameter. It's a sonnet, which means it's 14 lines, and iambic pentameter, which I've explained before, is ten-syllable line, on stress syllable, stress syllable, on stress syllable, stress syllable, and so on. So, didom, 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 didom. That's what you're getting. I won't be reading it quite that rhythmically. I'll try and put a bit of human being in it, as I'm sure Macefield would have approved of when he heard people 
read aloud. So it's a sonnet, and a sonnet generally has some general description of something followed by some cleverer thoughts at the end, a sort of twist in the tale, if you like. This is Partridge's. I'm going to give you a stanza at a time. There's only four stanzas, so I won't be keeping you. Here they lie mottled to the ground unseen, this covey linked together from the nest. I'm going to stop there. Maybe I should let you in on In case you don't know, a covey is like C-O-V-E-Y, it's like a flock. So we're talking about partridges we get from the title, and these ones were linked together from the nest. So they've been together. They are, some are related, but they've at least, they've lived together, these partridges. They probably share blood experiences and terrain. Here they lie mottled to the ground unseen, this covey linked together from the nest. The nosing pointers put them from their rest. The wings were, the guns flash, and all has been. Now you'll notice that the rhyme scheme is what one would call ABBA, A-B-B-A. So you get the first and last line of the stanza rhyme and the middle two rhyme together. So here they lie mottled to the ground unseen. If you know what a partridge looks like, you'll know they are partly camouflaged in that way, mottled. And you can hear the iambic pentameter. If I read it like this, here they lie mottled to the ground unseen. You would get your ten syllables stressed on stressed and so on but if I read it all like that you wouldn't get to the end and I'm not sure I would here they lie mottled to the ground unseen this covey linked together from the nest something already sad about that linked together from the nest they sort of know each other linked by shared experience as i say blood terrain whatever that siren in the background is is not my uh partridge alarm which goes off every time i uh discuss game birds it's just passing um, emergency vehicles okay it's really close now isn't it the nosing pointers put them from their rest. Pointers are those dogs that uh, seek out the game, that find the birds and the animals so that the accompanying human beings can kill them. The nosing pointers put them from their rest. They've just been resting these birds, these birds that were linked together from the nest. The wings were, and they do make that sound, Partridges, the guns flash and all has been. And that's a great end to the stanza, I think. Three monosyllables, all has been. It's happened, it's very quick, it's done, it's past tense. What was a breathing creature, a group of connected creatures who were just resting they have gone now the the next stanza begins with a line that i just adore here we go 
the lucky crumple to the clod shot clean. The lucky, so the lucky ones, the lucky crumple to the clod shot clean. So the best way to experience this is just to die. Shot clean. Again, it's the use of two monosyllables. It stops you up short. The lucky crumple to the clod shot clean. And obviously you can hear those C's and those L's. And that sort of sudden donness about it all. I'm going to keep going. The lucky crumple to the clod shot clean. The wounded drop and hurry and lie close. The sportsman praised the pointer and his nose until he sensed the hiders and his keen. So if you're lucky, if you're a lucky partridge, you just die. The wounded drop and hurry and lie close. So they're on the ground. There's a beautiful irony in this. The sportsman praised the pointer and his nose. Obviously, the dog needs a good nose to find these creatures. But the sportsman does feel ironic. It doesn't feel like sport when it's explained like this, I don't think. And the point is being praised until he scents the hiders and he's keen. So he's keen now to go and clear up the wounded to finish them off, this dog. I'd like to, can I just, I'm just going to bookmark that and I'm going to reach for my collected poems of Alexander Pope. Anyone who's listened to this podcast previously might know of my love of Alexander Pope, the 18th century poet and he wrote a poem called winds of forest which in my opinion is essentially an anti-war poem it celebrates amongst other things the treaty of utrecht which as i'm sure you know brought an end to the war of spanish succession and he talks about hunting in winds of forest pope grew up in winds of forest so he talks about that and this is what he says about hunting oft as in airy rings they skim the heath the clamorous lapwings feel the leaden death so in airy rings they skim the heath these beautiful birds but then they feel the leaden death leaden obviously because it's from a gun Oft as the mounting larks their notes prepare. So we have an image of these larks in the sky about to sing. They fall and leave their little lives in air. So you wouldn't really expect this maybe in the uh, early 18th century, a sort of anti-haunting, sort of haunt saboteur poetry. And he brings in the dog's not not um, identified as pointers, but beagles in this, to planes. So they go to the planes, to the P-L-A-I-N-S, flat land, I suppose. To planes with well-breathed beagles we repair and trace the mazes of the circling hare. So we find where the hare goes. Beasts, speaking now of the beagles, Beasts urged by us their fellow beast pursue and learn of man each other to undo. So they learn from us to kill their own 
kind. They they are the dogs have learned to track down other animals for our pleasure, just like in the war human beings are killing each other. And he actually I've been on Pope too long, but you know, I, if I get if I start reading Pope, I'm gonna be reading Pope. That's how it is with me. Thus, if small things we may with great compare. So if it's all right to compare massive things with what what might be seen as uh, minor things, rabbits and lapwings and stuff. When Albion sends her eager sons to war, Albion being Britain, some thoughtless town with ease and plenty blessed. And that town has got ease, just like those partridges in the Macefield poem were just resting Some thoughtless town, thoughtless in not worried, not anxious, relaxing. Some thoughtless town with ease and plenty blessed. Near and more near the closing lines invest. So they don't know that the British army is closing in on them. Sudden they seize the amazed defenceless prize. And high in air Britannia's standard flies. So the British flag goes up and again early 18th century you don't really expect to see war described in such a negative way now i'm not saying that john macefield's partridges is about war oh well, i am i am a bit i am saying that it see listen to this so now we've had two stanzas of four lines this is a sonnet so there's 14 lines in all so we've got six lines to go and it's as is often the way with a sonnet, they've split into two lots of three. Here's the first. Tumbled in bag with rabbits, pigeons, hares, the crumpled corpses of forgotten all. Now, I just want to stop it there before I do the third line. I think the crumpled corpses, that's very hard. In 1936, The Great War is a way off and the Second World War hasn't happened yet. But even so, people know what war is like. Tumbled in bag with rabbits, pigeons, hare. So these partridges, they're not even a distinctive species anymore. They've just gone in the dead bag with rabbits, pigeons, hares. It sounds slightly blissful for a second. And this is a very good example of our old friend, Enjambment. An enjambment is when a line stops, but the sentence doesn't. So you think it said one thing, but when the sentence continues, you realise something odd is going on. So the crumpled corpses of forgotten all sounds like a bit like that bit, the lucky crumple to the clod shot clean. They're dead, they've forgotten everything, it's all okay. But if we go to the end of the actual sentence, onto the next line, the crumpled corpses have forgotten all the covey's joys of strong or gliding flight. So what they've forgotten is not all, as in now they don't have any worries anymore, they've forgotten all the covey's joys. So the flock, if you like, they've forgotten their joys of strong or gliding flight. And I guess for birds, these are the two big flight classifications. Strong when you're properly at it, flapping, 
and gliding flight when you just ride the air. So they've lost that. They've forgotten all that joy and beauty and that tremendous symbol, perhaps the ultimate symbol of freedom, flight. Last three lines, and I love them. But when the planet lamps the coming night, the few survivors seek those friends of theirs. The twilight hears, and darkness hears them call. So, but when the planet lamps the coming night. Now, lamping is a type of hunting done at night by lamplight. But when the planet lamps the coming night, that first light, I think the moon is the lamp being held up. And the planet, if you like, is hunting the coming night. That night is coming toward it or it toward night. The few survivors seek those friends of theirs. Now, I know we're talking about partridges, but we're also talking about anyone who's been involved in a battle, aren't we? They're seeking those friends of theirs, the few survivors. I mean, and the last line, the twilight hears and darkness hears them call. So these partridges, through some avian instinct too deep for our understanding, are seeking the friends, seeking those birds that they have been linked together from the nest with. They don't know where they've gone. They seek them. They seek, as, it's, as Macefield says, those friends of theirs. And listen to the last line. The twilight hears and darkness hears them call. So first of all, the twilight hears. So it's getting a bit dark now. The twilight hears these birds, these survivors, calling to their friends that they can't find anymore. They don't know where they are. And then the darkness and darkness hears them call. So we get a sense of time now. It was twilight, and there's this call from the surviving partridges trying to find the lost ones. But now it's darkness. It's beyond twilight. Time has passed. The calling continues. But listen, the twilight hears, and darkness hears them call. That's all. The lost friends do not hear them because they have either died shot clean or the pointers have uh, gone off to clean them up. So the only ones who hear the plaintive cries of the surviving partridges are twilight and darkness. But of course, they are not heard by the dead birds. That is partridges, and I think it's about war, and I don't think that's stretching it too far. I mean, the few survivors seek those friends of theirs. Could be just partridges, but we know poets don't work like that. So that was John Macefield. As I said, poet laureate of... um, Great Britain from uh, 1930 to 1967. 
not as cool a poet as uh, as some, but I I really like him. And if you get a chance to read one of those long narrative poems like uh, Dorbe, you should uh, just give it a go. They're they're on the internet, and they trundle. Thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. There'll be less poetry in that, but more jokes. See you next week.